Hello and welcome to Exit the Stage Door. I am Aaron Teachman, your host, and this is episode two of season two. The one of Exit the Stage Door, which I've already said. So, but I'm very excited about this episode. Uh, I recorded this chat with Celia Wren, who is a freelance theater critic in the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm really excited about it because it represents something that I really wanted to do with the podcast and I'm really looking forward to do with season two, which is to expand even further the world of people that we talk to and when we talk to about theater in the regions. It's not just about... The, the people that you commonly think of. It's not just about the actors and the directors and the designers. It's also about production managers, and it's about master electricians, which I'm trying to line up, and it's about people who uh, are the are in some ways like your public interface uh, between a play and its intended or otherwise accidental audience, and that is a drama critic. And I'm re- I, I just it was it was great to talk with Celia about it and and to open up about how how hard the writing process is uh which i still experience so it's great to hear that coming from somebody who's who, who's got so much experience with it and just talk about the the nuts and bolts I, I use that phrase a lot during the podcast i apologize for that but uh yeah it was it was really good it was a lot of behind the scenes stuff um and and stuff that people don't necessarily think of as as behind the scenes but it's an important part of everything that i've worked with at a regional theater um inter- interfacing with the critic is 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 part of and cr- critics is, is an important part of what we do when we finally get to to previews into into press night and uh, it was great to have a chance to talk to her the one quick little note we mentioned uh, that she had a column in the every week in the Washington Post um, called diaspora unfortunately that column has been uh, discontinued which is a bummer but she uh, is still an active reviewer with them and you can check out some of her latest work including a review of Cinetics latest uh alice in wonderland uh there's links to that in the show notes uh and you know what everybody this was this was a really great little chat to have we had it in the director's booth at shakespeare theater company and which is a lovely place to record a podcast i must say and yeah episode two of season two it's celia wren all right that's excellent great okay so i'll take these off and yeah so hi hi (laughs) I've, uh, yeah, I guess I, I explained a little bit about the podcast to you. Um, well, I've listened to a couple of your episodes. Oh, really? After you con, I'd never he- heard of it, but then I um, listened to a couple of episodes and I was very favorably impressed by the intelligence <laughs> of what people said, including yourself. Um, and then I did see that you were also named as a top podcast by American Theater Magazine, yes. my old employer. So oh, I thought, okay. you know, oh, well, I'll definitely say yes. <laughs> that was really, it was really fun. Um, I, I follow them on. Twitter and and then Facebook and stuff like that. So and I was like, oh, theater podcast. I was, I I also wonder who else is working in this mm-hmm. in this niche because it, I thought it was underserved, which is why I started it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then <laughs> discovered that they had named me as part of it. I was like, oh, oh, I. <laughs> so I got into SoundCloud and stuff so they could embed it, because oh, okay. um, uh, I for a little bit didn't have I didn't have every all of the podcast catcher things like stitcher and stuff like that so it was very encouraging though <laughs> to see somebody <laughs> randomly notice that it mm-hmm. happened it was very cool um so yeah so you know then that one of the things that uh i like to start with just because my own career is so w- weird um is how how you got where you got um 
because you're but you're you're more than just a theater critic right um, um well i i'm uh, the washington post started this column called the diaspora column oh. which um runs every week so i'm doing that every week it's um local arts events with an international angle oh. and um so that's very interesting but i've i still do the theater uh and my my first love is covering theater um, but I, um, my father was a foreign correspondent, so I grew up all over the world, and I think that's why they asked me to do this oh. um, diaspora column because um, I feel very comfortable around embassies. Because you know, <laughs> I all my friends when I was a kid were embassy, wow, yeah. you know, or embassy people, and and um, so so I do that too, and uh, yeah, and theater. Okay. Uh, have you? Oh, I. I the the title of the that multicultural I I forget the title of the Institute at Georgetown. Oh. Um. That also. That is very relevant. Yeah. Okay, I, yeah, haven't, I, I haven't like, covered them as much because okay. I think that they um, if it's a story where I feel like it's going to get a mainstream, mm. you know, thing where they uh, someone from like uh, might write a twelve. Hundred word story about it, then I don't want to try to you know corner <laughs> it into my little um, diaspora column where I tend to do like two four hundred word stories. Mm, okay. Um, so I haven't because their their stuff seems so um, as if it might attract mainstream right. attention and it has in the past. I think um, right, yeah. like when they tried to ha do the 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 Syrian bring the Syrian people in mm. and that was squelched the last minute. You know, um, that seemed like too because of a story. Mm, so yeah. I tend to do smaller things. Although I did just do. Um, uh, um, the coming to the Kennedy Center, the Canadian Lebanese playwright who wrote Scorched, he is coming to um, the Kennedy Center to do a one-man show, which is in French. It'll have English subtitles. Mm. Um, so I wrote about that. So I do sometimes get to write about international theater stuff. Mm, for that. That's very cool. Uh, yeah, I, I've had the privilege a couple times of working at the Kennedy Center, and I've always been impressed just by the scale of of activity. Yeah, it's, in, in the, it's an enormous building, and it's always got something <laughs> yeah. happening in it. Which mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. They're very good at programming that kind of thing. It's really cool. Um, so um, you're, yeah, you're asking me how I got here. <laughs> yeah, I so um, I, uh, when at uh, for my last two years of high school, I went to boarding school because my parents were living in China, and there was I went to a French school there for a year, and then it ran out, and there was no school my level, so I went um, to Northfield Mount Hermon, which is a, a school in. Um, uh, Massachusetts and I started doing acting there and then when I went to college um, I did more acting and then uh, one semester I didn't get any roles and I was very depressed and I went um, home after dinner and my roommate was going to uh, do um, go to a meeting for the local arts paper the not the big paper but like the alternative paper mm, yeah like mm -hmm. the city paper <laughs> of <the college>. um, <laughs> And so I went with her because I didn't have any uh, any uh, rehearsals to go to, and um, I ended up sort of auditioning to be uh, an arts writer for the paper. And then um, the next year I became the arts editor. And so then I started writing reviews and then also acting. Um, and um, so I sort of started thinking about writing reviews and what should be in a review. And, yeah. Um, and when I was in college age, I knew exactly what should be in a review, what a review was supposed to do. And of course, the older I got, the more uncertain I became and felt like I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but it was sometimes the case with uh, when you're younger, you have more confidence. That's absolutely true. So um, then, uh, so I went to um, 
at that point, my, my parents were living in South Africa. I went there for a while, a while after college, and I um, um, I worked for the, I used my college clippings to get a job working for the, this was before the fall of apartheid. This was in uh, oh. like 89, 90. Mm. Um, so there was an English language anti-apartheid paper, which is the big anti-apartheid paper there. So And they needed an extra critic, so I wrote for them. Um, and, you know, on a freelance basis. And that was great because, um, you know, when you're in situations of where the art is sort of oppressed or controlled or um, in a, you know, a, a political state of political oppression, art can be very important. Mm -hmm. So that was very exciting. To, so I covered, you know, plays and things at the Market Theater, which is a fabulous um, liberal theater in downtown Johannesburg. Um, and it was, it was, you had a really high sense that art was very important. Mm. So I wonder, you know, if maybe that's why I sort of continued going into it. Um, and then I, uh, I got a degree in creative writing. And then I, uh, I worked for a while in book publishing, and I hated that. <laughs> um, so then I went to work for an art social service organization. I was living in New York for, at the mm -hmm. time. Um, and... Um, I uh, sent my clippings, which I'd had from South Africa, to um, a little paper that I still write for, which is called Common Wheel, and they oh, needed yeah. a critic, uh, first for books and then, then for theater. Um, so then I started writing for them, and then uh, I sent some clippings to American Theater Magazine. They had an opening. Um, and first they turned me down. I'd actually written to them, written for them in, in South Africa because um, one of the things people didn't know about South Africa under apartheid was that whilst films were, could be censored, like once I was sent to review a film and, and got there and found it, it had been banned, so <laughs> good. Um, but that uh, there was a lot of um, anti-apartheid theater that was allowed because the authorities didn't feel that uh, theater attracted enough of a mainstream mm -hmm. audience to get people, you know, it was kind of like a... a uh, way to let off energy. Um, so I'd written a, a story about um, f uh, for American Theater Magazine about anti-apartheid theater mm -hmm. at the time, and yeah. then they sort of remembered me. Um, so then I started working for them um, as an associate editor, and then the managing editor left, and then I became the managing editor. So I was there for um, a long. I think uh, for a while I was the longest-serving managing editor ever at American Theater. That may still be the case, but it, it may. I'm not really sure. Um, but I was there from like the late '90s to 2004. Um, and um, when I first started working there, being an associate editor is really fun. It was like, <laughs> it was the best job in the world. I thought. Um, but then being managing editor was perhaps less of a best job in the world because there was more worry. And um, then my husband, who'd been, well, he was, uh, I didn't marry him originally, uh, but um, we married in 2001. Before then, we were living together in New York. Um, but then he, uh, his firm um, was bought by uh, Wachovia Securities, which was based in Richmond. Mm -hmm. So then I sent my, uh, anyway, um, I said, I'll freelance and he will um, hold down the full-time job. I'll get health insurance from here. Um, so I sent my clips to the Washington Post, and I started freelancing for them. Um, and I and uh, and then I also, um, uh, as I told you in our email, I split my time between uh, Richmond and the Washington area. My in-laws live mm -hmm. in um, Northern Virginia, and my husband and I are looking for houses in Washington, Washington area because um, he doesn't. Work, his firm is now in California, so he works from home. So and. Um, I do a lot of work in Washington, and and he finds it more stimulating in Washington because he loves museums. And mm -hmm. 
So, um, but uh, I've written for the for the Richmond Times Dispatch for a while since I was since I left American Theater. I uh, freelance for them um, and a couple other people, but mostly for the Washington Post. Oh wow, that's that's actually pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> the um, it's yeah, that's it's so that's not rare, but it's it's rarer that I find that someone has n had a particular direction and trajectory. <laughs> for so directly for so long like you knew well well okay. it was kind of ex it was kind of ex actually okay. I started for some reason I started saying very early that I want to be a theater critic but I never thought it would happen I just mm -hmm. never thought it was happen so I went to book publishing right and then I went for this arts social service organization in New York um, which was also the 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 theater that had the audio description yeah. um, contract or you know it monopoly in New York so <laughs> I, I did audio description for them oh. on the side so I got to see more theater and then I went to work for American theater so I did some drifting oh, okay you know, I think yeah. ever I think probably most people do some drifting yeah. unless you go straight to an investment bank <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> my college roommate the uh, the first time I went to school um, uh, he knew that he wanted to be a physics professor from the time he was in high school he and he had his I always envied him that like clarity. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I always yeah. wished I had more, you know, clarity about what I wanted to do because I had a lot of interests. In yeah, it, yeah. Managing that—that's I hear that story from uh, from my friends and from a lot of people over and over again. Like ma managing, finding a way to turn something that is interesting when you have so many interests into something that you can do steadily and focus on and and not lose focus, but like still feel complete is such a difficult challenge uh in, in, in finding a career and and i i still haven't <laughs> totally figured it out but it's interesting to hear people how they s wrestle with that um what uh <laughs> sorry i i never know I, I hate to be boring so i'm always i always have this little hesitation when i ask a question um <laughs> which makes for great radio <laughs> but um I'm curious about your your um, your critical philosophy. Then, like, how how do you approach? How did you? Well, yeah. How do you approach um, the the review and where, where? Or yeah, let's go back down to that. Like, how have you landed on the purpose of a review? Um. Well, you know, reviews can have a, a couple of different purposes. For example, I will very often read a movie review of a movie I have no intention of reading just because the yeah. stylist is funny or, you know, it's going to be a big thing in the culture and I like to know, you know, how ridiculous it is. <laughs> um, so you've got to write for, for people who, who want to read and be, you know, and mm -hmm. presumably your style helps fit that um, niche. Um, I, I do think that... Um, a review, even when you, that a review shouldn't be totally um, judgment based. Like mm -hmm. it shouldn't just be about me speaking from on high. This is good. This is bad. But you should also describe it enough so that um, someone who might have different tastes from you will be able to read it and get a sense of what the play is like, and um, and know whether they might disagree with you or not. So I, I do try to you know put a lot of um, or I would ideally try to put enough description in so that people can get a sense of what right. the play is. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a, I could, because, uh, I, I mean, my background is in literary theory and literary criticism. So like the, the approach to, to analyzing a piece of literature is very much the same. You, you, at a certain level, it's not, I mean, at a basic level in 
in the real world, there are plays that are bad and there are productions that are bad and people should know about that. But but by and large, there's a certain level of production value that, that when you set, when you walk into Shakespeare Theater Company, it's already established. We don't have to worry about whether or not it's going to be technically capable mm-hmm. or good in that sense. Like, So then it becomes a matter of, of of analysis and sometimes you can you end up on like you think something some directorial choices were retrograde or whatever and that makes it objectionable or but that then it becomes about breaking apart the experience of what you saw very much like a piece of literature when you're because whatever Proust doesn't care about what I say about him but my point lies within and it's, it's on me to figure out how that works out so that um, I I've always had that kind of like affinity for reviews and criticism and drama that's why I'm, I get along so well with the dramaturgs <laughs> uh, but I think it's interesting the, the technical realization of, of what's, what we just described which sounds like a simple idea is actually very hard at least for me in, in terms of writing um, yes <laughs> <laughs> I always am um, well it, uh, writing is just extremely difficult and uh, there's a quote by T.S. Eliot in uh, The Four Quartets which I always think I uh, he probably wrote about you know um, how one approaches God or prayer, but I always think of it in terms of writing. He talks about a raid on the inarticulate with uh, shabby equipment constantly de- deteriorating in the general imprecision of feeling. Um, I may have gotten some of that a bit wrong, but that is that yeah. is very general. Just and I just feel like that totally. Whenever I sit down yeah. and write, it's like I'm reading the inarticulate with shabby equipment, <laughs> and I've got a general mess of imprecision of feeling, and you know. It's it's always hard. So um, you've often got to write through a lot of stuff yeah. or do a lot of conceptual thinking that um, that you don't even realize you're doing. I think when you're putting together a review. Um, yeah. But um, but you know it is a good place to start with trying to describe and, mm-hmm. and right. have yeah. people feel like yeah. um, you're telling them what it, what it's like, so they'll get a sense of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you of course you've got you know larger questions about. Is the reviewer, you know, helping the artist? Does the artist read your review and say, oh, you know, I did this, if it's like a new play, oh, this plot point didn't come across what? Or, you know, are you writing, are you are you weighing in on behalf of culture, like we need more of this kind of play? And you've got you've got a lot of big um, philosophical issues going on in reviewing. Yeah. yeah. Um, which you really probably shouldn't think about when you're sitting down <laughs> at your computer. You right, just yeah. totally The weight of the world is <laughs> not on me for this one, but it's still there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I've actually had brief encounters with Peter Marks on Twitter as a result of because <laughs> he, he he occasionally speaks to that issue on on Twitter as well about you know what's the point of review and mm-hmm. and um, for theaters and and uh, for culture as a whole and what's the role of the critic because that's such a contested space because because so few people are able to financially sustain it because papers aren't paying for it anymore not as that like you you aren't like the Washington Post is actually a very impressive newspaper yes, with a real dedication a to it. A couple of people who are actually on their staff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we're the other thing to um, take notice of when you're talking about reviewing these days is that we're in the middle of a big shift, sort of like paradigm shift, because it used to be that there used to would be some people on the staff who were knowledgeable and who could weigh in from on high and tell everybody what to think. Yeah. And now, you know, everyone can be a critic. Everyone can start their yeah. own blog or whatever. Um, so there's kind of a authority is different now. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a very good way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, cause, uh, 
Um, I I can't even remember why I stumbled back on my old literary theory class text, but for some reason I I dug up uh, some Stanley Fish <laughs> uh, from Is There a Text in This Class? And the the most instantly accessible part of it that is 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 about his discussion of like uh, critical authorities. What is what is acceptable? And where the notion of acceptability and thinkability for a critical approach comes from. <laughs> so it's actually been on my mind, which is hilarious. <laughs> I also I didn't mean to, but I sort of I didn't I didn't pressure my girlfriend to read it in any way, but she did, which was kind of awesome. I haven't I haven't had a chance to both read and talk about Stanley Fish with anybody in a really long time. It's been a long time for me too. Yeah, <laughs> not that I agree with mo- it's it, it, Stanley Fish. So it was weird because I rediscovered him because he had a some sort of editorial space in the New York Times for a little bit and I would occasionally see his byline and be like oh what is Stanley Fish talking about these days um, and he, he had pulled way back on some of his earlier notions that texts don't exist at all but uh, reading him was so interesting because I find myself agreeing with a lot of the individual points but when he put it all together it's like but no that's all no I so it's a very weird experience to... I actually, um, I studied literature in college, which is basically a comparative literature degree. Mm-hmm. So we had to do literary theory, and I hated pretty much of all of it. So <laughs> I blocked it out of my mind, so I hope, you, hope you're not going to put me in the spot no, here no, and no, ask me. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of my work in the English department just because I uh, I didn't like literary theory so much. Yeah, it's a... But, yeah, it's I mean, I'm sure a, it did teach me a lot of uh, things about ways of thinking and um, cr- critiquing uh pieces of art yeah well my my that's the my intellectual development um I, if i can say anything as highfalutin and silly as that and I, I was exposed to it in college in germany at, through an american studies class and it was the first time that i had ever experienced the idea that you could apply rigor to to something like as soft as literature, because I was a, I was a chemistry major, <laughs> so. Oh yeah, well, th- what I had against literary theory was people trying to apply too much literature, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. too much rigor to a piece of literature, right? And I just um, yes, <laughs> I, I got really irritated with people who were trying to teach pride, you know approach Pride and Prejudice as if it were a piece of chemistry. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know an yeah, analysis. Absolutely. And, although I, d- I did learn a, lo- a lot of int- a lot of useful things like. Uh, like who talked about the horizon of expectations? Oh yes, um, genre, related to genre um, things like that. I don't. Oh, it's remember. a German, but, but that's yeah. a very useful concept. Yes, for it instance, is. Yeah, and yeah. Also in in writing reviews. I can think. Oh, I can see the cover of the book. Well, we'll Google it. When <laughs> yeah, we get exactly. <laughs> but uh, that actually it got me. It was. I I didn't do theater at all when I was in college. Um, until my, I was getting my third degree and I was in the film department, but the only way to do the things I wanted to do in film was to actually spend more time in the theater department. So when I, when I hit the literary theory, and, and then I spent a year in Germany, so I couldn't finish the chemistry degree in the time allotted by my scholarship. So mm. I only had one choice and one degree mm. available to me. Um, and I impressed the academics in the German departments because I had tar- started reading the, this is a total accident, I wasn't trying to do anything that interesting, but I read the literary theorists as primary texts. Like I ignore, I, I essentially read them as literature, which. Oh, they probably love that. <laughs> they did. They're like, oh, that's a very fresh approach because, uh-huh. you know, instead of taking what they said 
and doing it to like Billy Budd or whatever, mm-hmm. you I wanted to know the history of their idea. Like, how did they get there? I'm I like to read literature because I, I have the same. Pro- like, I like to read literature, mm-hmm. and then that's I enjoy the experience of of that and the thought that happens after that. But the analysis afterward, not not a huge yeah. fan of that of exactly of treating a book like chemistry. Um, so I did it to those guys because that made that made more sense at the time. And, uh, and it's worked out pretty well in theater. Um, I like. I like. I always try to explain it to. I was. I was just talking to Annalisa Diaz. Actually, um, we were talking about the generative artists and their idea for Wilder's two point and um, the idea of what the director does as a critical act, and that seems very natural to me. But I. I when I talk to some theater people who are like MFA, like uh, studio artist tra- trajectory, they don't like the the. There's just a blank wall that comes oh, down. That's and they, an interesting idea. Um, Think about that. Um, yeah, it's a uh, outside looking in kind of thinking, and yeah, that it, it, my biography doesn't read well. Creative. I tried to be a director in New York, and that failed relatively. Um, well, I mean, with a whimper, as 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 such things tend to do, <laughs> but uh, but it, you know, you learn from failure. So that was it was. It, sorry, we're we're there doing pre-show checks <laughs> for midsummer. We're in the director's booth. Yeah. Um, that was really that's speaker check. <laughs> sorry, uh, I was about to go off the rails anyway, though. Um, so we were talking about. Oh, I I. Had, I was on the, the literary theory jack. So, but reviewing. Oh, I, I'm I'm just curious, actually, like the technicality of the freelance relationship with with like Washington with the Washington Post and how how that works. You, how do you exercise your own editorial? Like, do you get to choose things or? Um. Well, what, the way it works with Post, I don't know how it works uh, anywhere else. Um, I mean, I've written for other publications, but not. Um, I wrote some uh, feature type stuff for the New York Times, but I never worked for them as a critic. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the way, way it works for the Washington Post is um, that one of their uh, full time critics. It, well, it used to be that Peter uh, Marks got. I think that he, you know, saw the full richness of the Washington season and decided what he was going to review himself, and then delegated it. And then um, now Nelson is um, doing the administrative stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know how they divide it up, but um, I get, uh, I'm currently get assignment, you know, from Nelson gotcha. say, do you want to okay. review this? Can you do this, that, and the right. other thing? And then I say, yes, because I always like to do everything. Right. <laughs> um, and try to work out the scheduling. And um, then we mutually agree on a, on a filing date. Um, and file, I never go into the office, never see a soul. <laughs> it's all email. Okay. <laughs> Um, the edit, you know, they're quite light um, edits uh, over there, which is very um, pleasurable to write there. Um, I once had someone t- uh, tell me that you know the Washington Post is a writer's paper, and I've c- certainly felt that. I mean, mm. uh, um, so they do a little editing. And they've got um, uh, some excellent copy editors who will come back to you with a question, and um, now and then. So it's it's all uh, all done remotely. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, on the th- on the theater side, so I, th- I imagine they how d- how does like credentialing work? How do you um, relate with theaters? Like, do you just get a ticket from in the mail or um, no? Uh, well, I get a lot of press releases, mm-hmm. and so I get this assignment. Can you review 
show X at theater Y, and then I either have a press release and I email the the, uh, the theaters have PR people mm -hmm. and say I'm going to review this, you know. And usually, either you'll have been told that there's a particular press night, mm -hmm. or I'll ask about the press night. And um, PR people are often very um, good about being flexible. But if you want to come like after the press night, but you've got to know they don't want you to come before the press night because right. it's not you know, in full ship shape, then right. the theory goes. Um, so so I send them an email and say, you know, can I come on your press night or could I come matinee on Sunday? Or, um, and they say yes or no. And um, they always, uh, the reviewer is always entitled to bring a guest. Um, and if I don't have a guest coming, I try to tell them so that I'll be by myself so they can sell the extra ticket mm -hmm. money, which I'm sure they need. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so th then you can just go and, and uh, a lot of the times they have a special PR desk and you pick up your mm -hmm. ticket. And you have your press release already because it's been sent by Oh, email. yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, one of the reasons I started the podcast was because there are, there are I mean, as a technician, I'm, I'm behind the scenes. Um, and a lot of that information doesn't make it to the, to the public. But w in, in my interactions with like marketing and, and how we behave differently when we know critics are in the house and that, uh, that kind of thing, it's always made me very interested in, in, in the nuts and bolts. And I don't, I don't know that en enough people. <laughs> oh, people don't know enough about the nuts and bolts. About, I mean, I, some of my favorite stories that I've done have been about the back. I love doing those backstage scenes about like uh, I did a profile of Colin Bills. And oh, yeah. Fabulous. And then, um, uh, Matthew Nielsen, the sound designer, that was really interesting. And, and my one of my favorite stories is I did a profile of uh, Rick Sordelay, I think the um, the, the fight, fight director, director yeah. for for um, when they were uh, for doing, Henry Four. Yeah, yeah uh, he's done a bunch of things. So that yeah, was great. Yeah. Just learning all this backstage stuff. I, I could do the, those stories all the time, but um, I, I don't know if editors always appreciate how much appetite there is. I actually don't know how much I have. I think people are really interested in I backstage yeah. stuff. I do too. So I'm um, hoping I can find another backstage yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, uh, because, I mean, half of what Family Day is about was, was getting kids on on stage and around the theater. And one of the, uh, one of the things that I always noticed and that made me think that there would be an audience for the podcast was that when tours would come through with um, with donors and with board members, and we would explain, we and we're just electricians, and so obviously I am very bored with the day to day because it's become routine. But of course, it's not actually routine to most people what mm -hmm. we do, um, and they are just they absolutely love learning about how we hang lights, how we focus them, how we use color, like what a scroller is, and and these these details. And projection is even more fun because people, people from a movie theater have an intuitive sense of like what a projector does, but mm -hmm. like they don't get to often witness the ways that theater artists will will bend video and light in order to create something new on stage. So it's they've always loved that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. and obviously I I love reading it. So. Oh yeah, and I love I love um, you know sitting in on rehearsals and mm, finding yeah. out backstage stuff because if you're if you're just a, a an audience member or um, or just a critic and you go to a performance, you don't always appreciate how much thought and work has been gone into every single moment. Like and then you go and you sit in a rehearsal and you see the you know the actor and the director discussing, you know, what am I going to do with this prop? Should I put it down here? Should I put it down then? You know, there's just so much work goes into yeah. everything that you see. And it's just great to be able to, you know, get chances to sit in or in a rehearsal or do some backstage stuff and appreciate all the work and expertise yeah. that goes in, Yeah, I find. 
my uh, some of my stage manager friends for whatever frustrations they have wrangling actors and and <laughs> tracking props and taking care of muddy people and blood and all of that stuff they absolutely adore being in the room um it's just it's it's absolutely one of the most fascinating aspects of what we do um in some ways uh major regional theaters um have we we i don't work for them anymore but i so hence the week, sorry. Um, it, do it in a sort of a factory style way. And a lot of people are sensitive to using that word, but I use it in a, in, in, in a good sense. Like we are, we are a machine that is set up to help people be creative. It, it, with, we, ha we have limitations obviously, but in terms of time and money, but we give a very free space to do this creative work and watching it the nuts and nuts and bolts again watching it actually sort of happen is is really is always one of my favorite parts and I, I don't get to be in the room as often as I would like either so yeah that's definitely one of my favorite parts the fun thing about Rick Sordelay um he <laughs> to circle back to that um um I, I don't know <laughs> this is this is very interesting and I I have to be careful because the story that I want to tell is uh still very fresh but it's interesting because if i think it shows off a bunch of, of ways in which theater is so connected because rick sort does something so specific he's in demand in a lot of places which i discovered by accident because um i don't know if you heard about it but during the rehearsal process for henry four one of the actors fell through the trap on onto the coffin um it was a um uh, it was just obviously a really scary moment. Um, they were, it was during the coronation scene at the very end, so we were very close to the end of the play, and it was this giant technical shift, and we were just trying to get it right. And you know, the worst the worst that can happen happened. Like the, it was just it was just fell fell through the cracks, and then he took he took he made a choice they hadn't ever made, so we hadn't teched it that way before in an effort to make it faster, and backed himself into the trap and then fell. Fortunately, it wasn't very far, and the coffin from the previous scene from King Henry's, from Henry IV's death, um, was just underneath the surface, so he wasn't terribly far away. Um, but that, uh, that was a really bad day for quite a lot of people. Mm. And when I lived in Houston, the person that I lived with fell from the grid mm. at the alley. Um, at the time, it was a tension mesh grid, so that was uh, 23 feet oh to zero deck. So seeing um, that that actor here fall brought back a flood of memories, and I reached out to the to the people that I lived with, you know, like, this this happened, and was thinking of you guys, and because uh, and, it, tur it, it turned out really well for for him, uh, he still can't do some ladder work, and like there's a weight he can't lift more than thirty pounds, kind mm -hmm. of thing for work. But um, he and his wife are doing really well, and they're still in the Houston area, and he still works for for the alley, and they they treated them so well. It was it was it was an amazing act of generosity to see what the theater did for him. It was fantastic. Um, but when I reached out to them, she had already heard about it because Rick was doing fight choreography for them in oh. Houston at the time. <laughs> so um, it's weird ways that theater like folds back in on its office is <laughs> always interesting. Uh, yeah. And my mind went completely blank. I apologize. I, th I think we need another question. <laughs> yeah, I was, gonna say, I was just I was like, oh yeah, question mode. Question. Um, 
so we talked about how assignments work. That's because that's really this is where I should have written the questions down. <laughs> so we'll work back around to it. Um. Uh, but yeah. so you were a managing editor for a really long time as well. Then I and I'm curious about American theater. Like how did well, we're talking a little assistant editor. We'll start with that. So, like, what does that what does that involve? Um, well, um, you know, you get copy in and um, do some line editing, mm -hmm. writing um, like the exits and entrances columns. You know, call Ed, back in those days, you actually had to get physical photos from people. So, mm. like through the mail, <laughs> I can imagine um, doing that stuff, and then uh, you know. Proof uh, after people had read it, be put into type, and you read and proofread and stuff like that. So, um, and then doing some writing, mm -hmm. um, doing that, and then uh, th it was basically a bit more of the same with the managing editor, but also worrying about what um, not overspending in various parts of the budget and right. stuff like that. And then also uh, also feeling more responsible. Um, that, I mean, this was uh, this was I left ten years ago now, so. You know, things, what with the technology, oh, yeah. things right. have probably changed a lot. Right. <laughs> well, because I, I, uh, the structure, what, what was the, like, organizational structure like? At were the you magazine? One, yeah, were you one of many managing editors? Oh, or? I was, there were three full-time editors when I was at American. Uh, Jim O'Quinn, who was there for, um, I think, about 30, he's been, he just left, like, last month. If he's actually left, if he's, he's just leaving or just left, um, and they just um, hired uh, a new editor-in-chief. Um, so, but when I was there, and they they have more editors now. When I was there, there were three full time people and um, one part time pe person. Mm. Um, so, uh, and then after, then later on, they hired an assistant, like an editorial assistant person. So now, and now they have more editors than, <laughs> but it was a very small staff. Yeah, that is, I'm, that's impressively small considering it's because it, they it comes out monthly. It com or? comes out at least when I was there. It came and I think it still comes out ten times a year. Or so oh, okay. basically every month, but then two uh, summer months it has two months together. Oh, gotcha. That makes total sense. The theater mm -hmm. dries up a bit. <laughs> well, I don't know if it does anymore. I mean, <laughs> I feel like it, it used to. I mean, obviously it does. So the season stop, but there's so it seems like there's so many more festivals now. Than there used oh to be yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's the. It's interesting as a technician that the the uh, work environment has changed even over the limited period of time that I've I've only been doing it since two thousand six, and it used to be that you know you you would have your season job and then you would go on unemployment and you would find uh, summer stock somewhere, or, or like you would either go on unemployment or find a summer stock depending on the how long the break was like for example actors theater. Of Louisville, they have a very short season that ends essentially in mid-April and doesn't start again until August. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a massive gap there mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. unemployment. And it's a long time to be on unemployment, so mm -hmm. most people find a summer stock to go to. Mm -hmm. um, and the alley, when I first started working there, they would wrap their season up in May, and most of the seasonal staff would be released, uh, and they would do one summer show. But a, you know, bare bones, bare minimum necessary to run it are only only one of the board ops was full time, and everybody else would just would leave, and then we would all go to Summerstock and then come back. And Summerstock was always an opportunity to play around, have a little bit more responsibility than you would normally have, and um, 
and have a lot of fun because that's crazy. Summerstock is essentially crazy. Um, but now theaters are lengthening their seasons to such a degree that it's worth offsetting them in strange ways. Like Oregon Shakespeare Festival's schedule is when their season starts. Um, is very strange relative to where everybody else is starting. Well, because they have get a lot of people coming in the summer, so their right. schedules, I think it's running like February to November. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Now, around then. Which is totally, like, almost counter-cyclical, which is awesome. Um, but that means that technicians now don't have as much opportunity to go to the summer stock. Mm-hmm. So I am less in touch with, with that world than I, mm-hmm. than I used to be when I was doing it every year, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is interesting. Um, but we stumbled on the thing that I had been meaning to ask you about the whole time. You were recently at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I was, yeah. I've been, because I um, learned about it when I started joining the staff of American Theater Magazine and um, had always been meaning to go and uh, never had. And so I finally did it and it was fabulous. Yeah. Now, uh, now I want to go back every year. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, have a, we have, I have a bunch of friends who actually work out there. Mm-hmm. The assistant stage supervisor and the assistant master electrician who I worked with at separate theaters, um, the assistant stage supervisor, I, f- I don't know her exact title, but Kate used to work here at Shakespeare, and Christine used to work at Actors Theater of Louisville, and then they all sort of, and I think we have one other person that I know who works out there now, and so I, I took a trip on the train a couple years ago. I did, because uh, Amtrak has this pass, where uh, it's like eight days, you get eight segments over 14 days of travel, um, so I went from D.C. to New Orleans to Houston to Los Angeles. Oh, wow. And then great. it was amazing. <laughs> um, and then I took a stop off in Klamath Falls <laughs> to, uh, to take the drive over to Ashland and uh, spend uh, just an evening with my friends from Oregon Chase Festival. <laughs> so it was really cool. And the town is very... We were just stunned by the number of used bookstores, <laughs> which impressed us very favorably. Yeah, I would, um, and uh, and the number of coffee places, which also yes. impressed us favorably. So, <laughs> it's so out of the way. It's so out of the way. Like Medford is the closest airport, and it's a tiny airport. Very small, yeah. How did you get there? Oh, we flew into Medford. Yeah, through, yeah. yeah, and it's simply gorgeous area to be in. What did what did you actually see? Did you saw what what is playing there right now? I, um, uh, we saw um, well, we saw uh, Pericles and Sweat, which um, Lynn Nottage's latest yes. play, Sweat, which yes. is which is co-production, I believe, with Arena Stages. Yes, be done at Arena. Yes, and Pericles is going to the Folger. Yeah, I was um, just going to ask you. And we also saw a. Um, a new musical uh, with music by the Go Go's, based on what? a with uh, based it's based on a story um, from Sir Philip Sidney's Arcadia. So that was some um, wow a novel, and um, <laughs> and we saw um, a long day's journey into night, which was oh. great. And um, we saw one one of the really interesting things was um, oh we saw Mary Zimmerman's Guys and Dolls, and we saw um, was it on a ship. I guess there is that. She has a reputation for water. Uh, yeah, no, there was no big pools of water in this production. Um, we saw a play called A Secret Love in Peach Blossom Land, which is apparently, according to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, um, the most pop, one of the most popular, most produced plays in uh, 
in mainland China and Taiwan, it seems. It was written by a Taiwanese oh. player, but it's been very popular in um, mainland China, apparently, too, because a lot of it deals. It's kind of like a, a noises off with a lot of Chinese, hi- uh, the 20th century Chinese history. And just to give you, it's a backstage drama about two troops. It, that was really, wow, that really interesting. And awesome. I love, um, you know, sometimes I often feel that. Uh, um, not when, not when I go to say gala Hispanic theater where they do lots of shows from you know uh, lots of different countries. But sometimes I, I do. It, it seems that in America we're you know not getting as exposed to as much theater from around the world mm-hmm. as perhaps might be good for us. So yeah. it's great always yeah. to have a chance to you know yeah. I thought it was fabulous to see a play um, you know written by a Taiwanese playwright. Yeah, absolutely. I've, that's I have certainly never seen. Uh, play by a Taiwanese playwright. Um, I was I was very interested in the Pericles because I um, for a year and a half I was a master I've been the master electrician at the Folger. Oh okay. Um, and Pericles is a very interesting show to be putting in that space. Yeah, which I believe is on a much larger stage at Oregon Shakes. Um, it was certainly. Uh, seemed like it came out into the audience mm-hmm. in a different way than but I will, I will have to see what they do yeah I, 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 I Folger's got a busy year and Pericles is part of uh, a very interesting season that they they're uh, about to unleash on the world I think I'm, it's, I'm actually kind of sad that I can't <laughs> can't help them with Pericles because I'm super interested in to see uh, see how that see how that goes they were oh I blinked again um. <laughs> Well, uh, was, there, was there something more you wanted to know about procedure, like of being a critic or something like that? Uh, well, I mean, I certainly... It seems y- like you had a question there. That yeah, I mean, your, your approach, um, because theater is about what you, the, the expertise that you bring to a show from, from the experience of it, uh, how do you approach seeing the show when you're preparing to review it? Um, well, I I think if it's if it's a classic, like if I'm going to review a uh, production of a Shakespeare play, then I'm trying to reread the Shakespeare play mm-hmm. before it goes on. If it's a new play, you don't want to do that because you want to come to it the way the audience is coming to it, you know, brand new. So, um, so. I prepare if it's a classic text as much as I have time for. Right. Um, and uh, just go take some notes. <laughs> okay. I take a couple notes, and then what I do is I get home. When I get home, I sit down and I type up all my notes, and that sort of calls. Oh, gotcha. Um, okay. Calls it back into my mind, and then I sit there and uh, you know try to come up with some intelligent points, and and you know the, the scariest thing, try to think of a first sentence. So you generally find yeah, once right. I have this first sentence. Then I feel a little better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting. The uh, like um, Flaubert has that fantastic um, line as well about um, uh, as about um, as if lips libertine and vino could not use. It's ah, man. I'm Is it totally about bu- le mot juste. <laughs> no, it's it's about um, how we. Um, make bears dance with cracked tin drums when we long to move the stars. Oh, that's good. Um, I'm look that up. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's always something that's that whenever I'm a com- bit like my TSA yeah, quote with a raid on the NRT exactly. with shabby equipment. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you you just you have that notion, and I'm 
the first sentence is always so much pressure that like the glare of <laughs> of that first sentence always makes me think of, mm -hmm. of the fear of especially that especially when you're writing review because um very often if it's a play that i have no attention of seeing or i'm just you know uh, it's a movie that i uh, or a book review even i one will often read the first at least i often read the first paragraph the right last paragraph to get the general yeah did mm -hmm. they like it what did they say you know and then the first paragraph and the last paragraph are often sort of on the catchy side so. yeah yeah <sighs> yeah that's that's definitely true um <laughs> one of my uh <laughs> Hans-Peter Zuda is my um, resident director uh, in when I was in Germany for a year. Uh, and his favorite thing to tell people who are having trouble writing their papers was from H.L. Mencken, uh, don't get it right, get it written. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I always thought was really great. Uh, I mean, I was a junior in college, and I was just barely beginning to understand the world. And I was like, yeah, that's really motivational. Mm -hmm. And then I learned a little bit more about H.L. Mencken's life. I was like, that's deeply cynical. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, but I, but it still motivates me. It's like, okay, it's fine. Just, just sh because I find ta shaping text is a lot easier than generating it. Oh, it's much easier. Like I will often, um, I'll sit and I'll try to try to start a review the day before it's due, mm -hmm. and I'll feel like I'm, you know, fighting my way through wet cotton wool. It's yeah. just all just imprecise and vague and not what I wanted to say and it sounds terrible and uh, I'll just get really depressed and I'll be completely mopey for all day and then I'll you know go to sleep and when I wake up in the morning um, and there's a deadline but deadlines are wonderful wonderful things <laughs> um, all of a sudden the, you realize that you probably did do a lot of thinking um, the day before and also when you're writing all those uh, inarticulate lines that don't connect well you're creating a lot of material you know rewriting yeah. is always easier than yeah writing, so. yeah um, Goldman always talked about that I don't know if you read um, Adventures in the Screen Trade but no I didn't William Goldman talks about like the horrible act of wrestling with his typewriter in his cave is how mm -hmm. he describes the act well, of one of the wonderful things that um, I learned while I was at American Theater is at one point we were editing a piece um, that was written by uh, Salman Rushdie um, or maybe we were quoting some remarks that he'd made but the one thing that um, that is very consoling he said that um, some critic had asked him you know what have you learned about writing and he said that each book is basically for him a new problem. So you can't really apply what you learned with the previous book to the next book because this is a different book, so what you learn to do there won't necessarily mm. work here. But what you do gain over the long term is a sense of confidence that you will come up with the solution to this new book. Right. So you have to keep coming up with new solutions, but you have a certain amount of confidence. So I'm always hoping that that is sort of the case. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't always feel like the case. And you know, I, I constantly feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and I am going to get things wrong. Um, so I don't always have that confidence, but you know, it's, it's nice to think of that, that I think he's yeah. right ultimately is that if uh, each review is a new problem, each book is a new problem, each project is a new problem, but you, you learn ways of coming up with a solution yeah. that uh, work over the long time. Yeah. I think, um, so one of the things that we do, I just, I describe what I do as a technician as making ideas real and, um, I find the act of writing is so interesting in in the way that you have to make the idea real in that case and with words is is you have you have both this like not grandiose but you have the, you have a sense of the larger goal of what you're trying to create the meaning that you're trying to create but there's such, it's such an interesting uh, like getting your hands dirty <laughs> on the keyboard nowadays not literally dirty well, hopefully if you're a keyboardist relatively clean but it's anyway sorry 
<laughs> but I think keyboards get very dirty. Yes, I, I, mean, I uh, hate to think what's on my keyboard. I have the <laughs> I have this factoid in the back of my brain, which somehow says that the keyboard at the nurses station is the dirtiest place in any hospital. Oh, probably. Yeah. Which may or may not be true, <laughs> but <laughs> somehow that idea got lodged there. But yeah, like um, writing is making something real, and and that's it's it's very hard <laughs> to to take what. Does it, what doesn't really exist in language at all, and, and give it a form in languages. It, it's because you've been you've been writing for for a long time. You have you certainly have more than your million words. You have your reps in, um, as uh, as uh, Stephen King would say. But every time you write a review, you still have that uh, complete panic. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's reassuring to, <laughs> to know that the 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 same panic and fear that I experience is also true of people who have done it for a long time mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I also find, um, I, I think this is a quote that I've seen attributed to um, a bunch of different people, or a couple of different people. Uh, how do I know what I think till I see what I say? Mm. Um, and you, I often find that with, uh, with writing too, is that it, when I leave the theater or, or um, my ideas are vague and it's only when you get down and start writing mm -hmm. sentences that yeah. you're really doing you know then you know what you think you before that you didn't really know what you thought because you it wasn't in words so. right yeah yeah another good quote <laughs> yes i did that with my research that's exactly how i did my research papers i would just take copious notes and then and then in the act of typing up the the notes would find would see the connections that like led me to write it down in the first mm -hmm. place yeah that's uh yeah um, we are basically at our hour. All right. So, um, do you have anything? Uh, this th this will drop probably mid October. Um, great. <laughs> so, do you have anything to plug or anything? Anything to plug? Well, any. Uh, uh, what does I the? I don't think I have anything to plug. Okay. <laughs> does, the, does the column have a name? Or it's a. Oh my my weekly column on international is called Diaspora. It's called Diaspora. Um. So and then uh, the Washington Post yeah. cultural coverage. It's great. It is. Um, <laughs> there you have it. Okay, great. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.